Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, and welcome back to the Heredity Podcast. This month, the genetics of handedness and the increased expression in genes escaping the X chromosome. I'm Jeff Marsh. Now then, I'm a proud left-hander, and there's plenty of evidence from large twin studies to suggest that handedness is congenital, and not just down to which hand one's parents first plonk a spoon in, for example. And there have been several models put forward to match the patterns of handedness seen in the population, but the actual causative genes behind the trait remain elusive. John Armour from the University of Nottingham and his colleagues decided to put these models to bed by performing a genome-wide association study of thousands of twins that would presumably spot loci even weakly associated with handedness. I started off by asking John about the rough proportions of left-handed and right-handed people in the population. Well, it's almost exactly around the world 10%, 11% are left-handed. What makes a difference both between populations and between time eras is that different pressures have been brought to bear on people to conform. So as you're probably aware, in the past, many naturally left-handed people were persuaded or coerced to do things in a right-handed way with more or less success in persuading them to flip. And why do you think it is that when it comes to complex motor functions like fine hand movements, humans tend to pick a side and then stick with it? I think that's simply because of the reinforcing property of repetition. We all know that when we practice something, particularly when it comes to intricate uh, or complicated movements and procedures, nothing helps us to do it well like practice. And whether there are inbuilt or learnt tendencies to be right or left-handed was an interesting question for a while. But I think there's now little doubt that there are very strong propensities in everybody just about to be on one side or the other, which they feel at least that they haven't learnt. What do we know about the cause of handedness? So to cut a long story short, some of the best and most definitive evidence about the inheritance of handedness comes from very large-scale studies of twins. To essentially ask the question, when you look at identical twins, are they more similar to one another in their handedness than are non-identical twins who will have had the same environments uh, but, of course, don't share their genetic background to the same extent? And their conclusions are that while... There clearly is a genetic component to handedness. That component is surprisingly subtle and surprisingly weak. So of the variation in handedness, you can ascribe about a quarter of that variation to additive genetic factors. Right. And there are models, aren't there, that seem to fit those numbers 
uh, in terms of the resemblance between relatives, but they themselves haven't been tested. Sort of. And, and certainly there's been no discovery of a sort of magic switch gene. And indeed, it was our, our failure to find any glimpse of such a thing that was really the focus of our study. But in a sense, some of the very simpler models, uh, like, say, the right shift theory of Marion Annett, where different genotypes simply give you a different tendency towards right-handedness, or the theory from Chris McManus, the dextral chance theory, that people with one genotype will simply become right-handed, whereas people with some of the variant genotypes will not inevitably become left-handed, but will have a 50-50 or a 75-25 probability of becoming left-handed. Those relatively simple models were proposed way before we had either the large-scale twin studies that really gave us an idea of how weak and complicated were the genetic influences on handedness, or before, of course, we had the ability to genotype thousands and thousands of markers in the genome in thousands of people and ask whether any markers in the genome that correlated with handedness. And your thinking then was that if there were a simple genetic influence of this kind, that you would be able to spot it by comparing identical and non-identical twins in a huge kind of study of this size? Well, indeed, and that has already been done in studies in 2006, 7, 8, where people, again, used tens of thousands of twins. And what they found was that the influence of the genetic background was so subtle that, in fact, you could only hope to be convinced about the genetic influence by doing studies of the order of 10,000 twins. So one of the problems, of course, is that left-handed people are only 10% of the population. So if you're looking at the variation, even if you sample a lot of twins, relatively few of them will be left-handed. And those are, of course, the people who give you your information. Okay, so you turned to the London Twin Research Unit then and kicked off a, a genome-wide association study of up to nearly 4,000 individuals. Yeah, and, and the London Twin Research Unit is a really great resource. They have many thousands of twins on which features like handedness have already been recorded and indeed many thousands of twins in whom genome-wide SNP data have already been recorded. We simply had to ask them to say, yes, we'd like to see the data on handedness, and then we'd like to see the genome-wide genotyping data for those same twins so that we can then put the two together and ask, can we find any features of the genotypes that correlate significantly with the handedness? And first of all, you looked at the concordance in handedness, and you saw that there was no difference really between the non-identical and identical twins. Absolutely, and that's one of the illustrations of this idea that the, uh, the genetic effect on handedness generally is so weak that it is possible to look at several thousand identical and non-identical twins and not see evidence of that genetic effect that is at all convincing. Indeed, it was uh, a very, very small difference between the two and not at all significant. And that's why in order to demonstrate that there is a genetic influence at all, what's needed is the kind of work really well done by other people on doing enormous twin surveys of tens of thousands of individuals. And so the second thing that you were interested in then was trying to find some sort of locus having a strong effect on handedness to explain these simple genetic models. Uh, did, did you find one? 
No, we didn't. And, and it really depends on what you mean by strong. Um, I think the twin studies, again, involving the tens of thousands of people already told us that there wasn't going to be a magic region of the genome where you could just genotype it and predict the handedness of an individual. However, even those really well-powered twin studies really left the door open to what you might call a watered-down variant of those simple models, where there might be an important locus, one that, for example, might double your chances of being left-handed. Right? So if you think about what that would predict, if, if you have a variant that doubles your chances of being left-handed, then it would still only increase your chance from 10% to 20%. So still 80% of people with that variant would still be right-handed. Nevertheless, that would be a gene where we could say, having this variant doubles your chances of being left-handed. And that would be an interesting locus biologically. And given the numbers that we got from the subjects in the twin research unit, we were able to do some power calculations to show that in the kind of genome-wide data that we got, if there was any location in the genome that doubled your chances of being left-handed, we should find it. It should stick out like a sore thumb. And so would you say then that this is the final nail in the coffin? You know, can we now confidently exclude these simple genetic models from the future considerations of handedness? I think so. I think those large twin studies really did look like those single simple models were untenable, certainly in their original form. But we've demonstrated that really even a quite generous dilution of those models to bend over a little bit in the direction of genetic complexity are just not really tenable in the face of the data we have. And that as people have found with height, this is probably an example of another human genetic trait that has got clear genetic components, but when you try and unpick what those genetic components are, you find that there are many of them and they're all very weak, and that makes them very hard to find. That was John Armour from the University of Nottingham. Next, I spoke to another John, this time John Parsh from the University of Munich. He's been looking at Drosophila and specifically the expression of X-linked genes in the male germline. Some previous work had shown that something about the X chromosome environment seemed to seriously reduce the expression of genes in the male germline. John and his colleagues decided to delve deeper into this phenomenon by turning it on its head. What happens when you allow a gene to escape the X chromosome? I called John to hear more. How does life differ for the genes in the male germline? that are on the X chromosome as opposed to those on the non-sex chromosomes? So there are a couple of things that might differ. So one that maybe is obvious is in the dosage. So just like in humans, Drosophila males have one X and one Y chromosome. So this means that the males have one copy of the X, but two copies of all of the autosomes. So you might expect that the X chromosome would have only one half the expression that the autosomal genes have in males. However, it's well known that there are mechanisms of dosage compensation that occur in Drosophila males, and this leads to an approximate doubling of the expression of the X-linked genes, so that on average, there is equal expression from the X and the autosomes. It was originally thought that dosage compensation occurred throughout all tissues of the male's body, although there's been a recent study that showed that dosage compensation does not occur in the male germline. One other difference is something known as meiotic sex chromosome inactivation, 
And this is the process by which the X chromosome is transcriptionally silenced at or just before the start of meiosis. So MSCI is known to occur in mammals and several other taxa, uh, but there's been debate over whether or not it occurs in Drosophila. Right, so there's lots of evidence then that the X chromosome presents this unfavorable environment for gene expression in the male germline, in, in the sperm. Uh, and so previous work has shown that if you stick a gene from a non-sex chromosome onto the X chromosome, its expression is, is really reduced. Yes, so this was previous work. In my lab where we had generated some reporter gene constructs that used the testes-specific gene regulatory elements that came from an autosomal gene fused to a bacterial beta-galactosidase encoding gene. And so the way we do these experiments, we can randomly insert this reporter gene to different locations around the genome, some of them on the X, some on the autosomes, and then compare their expression. And what we found in the earlier experiments is you take the autosomal regulatory elements driving the reporter gene, move it to the X chromosome, you see a strong decrease in the expression. Is that not enough evidence then for you to infer some sort of suppression of gene expression in the X chromosome environment in the male sperm? So it at least provided us a hint that something unusual was going on on the X chromosome in the male germline. But of course, when you have a sample size of one, you don't know if this is something general that affects many genes and infects the whole X chromosome, or if it was something specific to that one gene and that one regulatory sequence that we looked at, and especially because that regulatory sequence came from what was normally an autosomal gene. Right, so what you guys wanted to do was to show the converse by taking an X chromosome gene and then plugging that randomly into regions of the non-sex chromosomes and, and seeing if its expression is then increased. Yes, that's exactly what we did. In this case, we used three different regulatory elements. All of them came from X-linked genes that are expressed in the male germline. And then we moved them to locations on the autosome. And one nice thing about this is all of these genes that are on the X chromosome are conserved among Drosophila species. So we know that they've been on the X chromosome for millions of years. And presumably, they would have had a chance to evolve to being in this X chromosome environment. So tell me then, what happened to your genes as they escaped the X chromosome, as you put it? Yes. So what we found is if we move these reporter genes away from the X chromosome, the expression increases by about threefold. So they have much higher expression when they're on an autosome than when they're on the X chromosome. Why do you think that is? Um, so our explanation for that is that there must be a specific mechanism that is suppressing gene expression on the X chromosome in the male germline. So we don't see this effect happening for genes expressed in other tissues of the fly, so, for example, housekeeping genes that are expressed in many different tissues. And in the current paper, we also showed for a gene called white, which affects the eye color of the flies. If you move that from the X to the autosome, you don't see a big difference in gene expression. And actually, you see the opposite. You see slightly higher expression from the X, which we think is due to dosage compensation. Right. So this is direct evidence then for some sort of mechanism by which these X-linked genes are suppressed in the male germline. Yes, this is the first experimental evidence where we've actually taken reporter genes and we can compare the expression of the same exact gene when it is X-linked compared to when it is autosomal. And do you have any ideas about what this mechanism of suppression is? Um, unfortunately, no. So we don't have any idea about how this mechanism works. We don't know what other genes or what other proteins are involved 
and we don't know if some of the components that are involved in dosage compensation are also involved in this X chromosome suppression in the male germline. Has natural selection favoured this suppression of X-linked genes in the male germline, or is it just a kind of ongoing battle of the sexes? Yes, well, there's a hypothesis that states that natural selection has favoured inactivation of the X chromosome in the male germline, and this is based on the idea of sexual antagonism. So it could be that there are some genes or mutations that can occur in genes that are beneficial to one sex but detrimental to the other. Um, And it's been predicted that the X chromosome may be a hotspot for these mutations. So, for example, the X chromosome could accumulate mutations that are beneficial to females but are detrimental to males. And then that could lead to uh, further selective pressure for the X chromosome to be inactivated in the males and particularly in the male germline because uh, these mutations might have... a big effect on reproduction, and if they are detrimental to male reproduction, you could see a selective advantage into turning off the expression of these genes. Now, how do you think that the the unfavorable environment of the X chromosome in the male germline has affected genes over evolutionary time? Yes, so the observation that there's, there's an excess of genes or gene duplicates that have arisen from an original gene on the X chromosome and moved to the autosomes and that these new autosomal copies of the genes are expressed predominantly in the testes, this suggests that there's an advantage to escaping the X chromosome. Um, You can imagine that if there is a selective advantage to say having high expression in the male germline, so for genes that need to be expressed, for example, in spermatogenesis, that you could achieve that high expression by leaving the X chromosome and moving to an autosome. And that's it for this episode. See you again next month for another instalment of the Heredity Podcast. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.